Welcome to Interplay Conversations in Music. This is your host, Michael Shapiro. Today with conductor, cellist, musician extraordinary, man of the world, Eric Jacobson. Hi, Eric. How are you? That's that's a very hard introduction to follow. Why? But that's you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for, for you know putting this together. It's great to have a conversation. Well, it's great to have a conversation in music always. And today with Eric Jacobson, who I consider one of the most organic, if I may, musicians I've ever see, heard, seen, thought about. What do I mean by organic? What I mean is whatever you approach as a conductor or as a cellist, as a musician, as a leader, it feels very fresh. So if you're conducting Brahms, for example, when I heard you live before this all hit, the Brahms sounded like a new piece. And for this composer, that's important because I think it's also your journey as a musician. Because didn't you start out basically as a chamber musician? Isn't that accurate? Absolutely. I think, well, first of all, thank you. All the things you said are too sweet. But yes, I remember very clearly when I got the bug to play music, which was somewhere 12, 13, 14, like, ah, this is really the thing I need to do. It was chamber music that drove me there. It was being in a small group and, you know, feeling connected, being able to talk to people on a different level, flirting, you know, figuring out how to do that thing. And when I was in college, there's no question that I thought if I could be a chamber musician, if I could make a living, if I could exist as uh, someone who could communicate on that level, that's it. Because, and to this day, right? To this day, we all recognize that the intimacy of the string quartet, the euphemism for, for uh, egalitarian conversation and, and, and thought and being able to be together, that's so incredibly special. And so as now, now that I'm a conductor and spend most of my time doing that, I think of the quartet as really the metaphor for what you want an orchestra to feel like. You want it to feel like the person playing second bassoon and the person mid-section and the first violins are connected on the deepest level. So to this day, it's still the search for chamber music with you know a, a, a larger palette. It used to be that conductors got their training in the opera house because it was thought to be that, and it's true, that was my background, that the working with the singer and the breath is very important. And also, the, to use the, word, the name of this broadcast, the interplay between stage and pit. But chamber music's no different, especially, you, you know, with your brother, Colin, the great violinist, and the creation of the Brooklyn Riders, your string quartet, where you professionally were listening to each other all the time, and then you work with Silk Road and so forth, with Yo-Yo. All of this stuff has gotten you ready, don't you think, for dealing with the ins and outs of a Brahms symphony and phrasing. Absolutely. And timing. Yeah. But also this, there's a period thing. You've played as a performing musician in chamber music, probably most of the Beethoven, if not all of the Beethoven string quartets, Mozart quartets, many Haydn quartets, to Shostakovich and who knows what else quartets. So when you approach, you know, a Shostakovich symphony, let's say, having performed the Shostakovich 
string quartets. You're one of the few people in the world, other than maybe David Oistrock, who can claim that. Don't you think? <laughs> that is absolutely one of, I feel like my luck, my lucks in, in life is that I was a string player versus being a pianist, which I, some of the time, I, I mean, you could, if you could give me the ability tomorrow to play piano well, you could choose any toe of mine you want. It's yours. <laughs> but be as safe, a, be safe, be safe. <laughs> but of course, growing up as a cellist and being able to have that connection, I, I'm, I'm about to say the connection to breath because you're right. Yeah. The string quartet is about the breath. That's right. And of course, you can't, could expect to communicate with an orchestra, especially when half of it are people that, you know, literally use their breath to make the sound on their instrument without that feeling. I still think about the time, you know, obviously when, you know, when you're young and you're playing in a quartet for one of the first times, like you actually do that thing where you're like, where you play, you know, you give an upbeat and it's exactly in time and you're in that tempo. And then you get to a place with a quartet that you play with more and more and your breath stops being about um, pulse. You know, like instead of thinking, this is your breath, <gasps> it starts to actually reflect exactly what the concept of the music is. And uh, that, that's a really kind of interesting thing. So, you know, the calm pulse of when you play something that has like a romantic or um, cantabile, beautiful sung moment, it has a different energy and maybe a slightly pul different pulse than if you're playing something quick and it's like bright and, and energetic. And I think that's a very important thing. Um, I, I still think that when there are moments a couple times in life, only a couple, where I'm on stage and I'm playing, but I'm not playing. Somehow my brother is like with his brain reaching out and pulling my bow across the string. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the earth moves, you know, there are only a few times that that happens. And when you, when I've experienced that, it's, it's such a beautiful moment of um, giving yourself to something. It's not uh -huh. taking, and it's not, um, no one's leading, but everyone's leading. You know, it's not a dictation. It's not a reception. It's just all this thing together. And that's, I mean, I think what you're, when you say that, um, you know, which is so beautiful that you feel like going to see a Brahms concert, you know, the organic feeling of what that is. You've been there. I, I hope that the reason for that is the idea that this push-pull of who's leading, who's following, is constantly changing. I love uh, that about his tapestry. There's no question, and him yeah, especially. Exactly. So, you know, when a horn player has this long solo and all, and you're thinking about where it's going, but you're really so tapped in with the breath of that human. Brahms that 3, the, Brahms 3, the uh -huh. romantic movement, when that horn comes in, if you didn't have the experience of playing the Brahms piano quintet, I don't know you could do that movement as well. But you I, have. I, yeah, I, I don't disagree. Don't disagree. <laughs> you know, I want to talk to you about the interaction, the interface. I'm, I'm not going to use interplay again. Between your stick and the players. This is an interesting fact. 
which I've encountered over my life, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. The times it works, you feel as if you're Harry Potter fighting Voldemort and the wand is going, kind of going back at you. Do you know that feeling? I had it recently, uh, before the pandemic, when I recorded Archangel Piano Concerto of mine with your Steve Beck. I say your Steve Beck because that's how we I met. Your Steve so. Beck. I love him. Greatest pianist in, <laughs> that I've ever encountered. Uh. He, can, he can read anything. In any event, we're recording with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales about a year ago, the Piano Concerto. And I'm feeling a tension in that baton that was just magnificent. Why? Because there was this communication going on between me and those players and the breath and dealing with Steve Beck's amazing virtuosity and, and phrase making. I saw it in your conducting that there, you let them come to you and you go back at them. It's a very interesting phenomenon. There are some conductors that you don't see that. When you watch Toscanini's recordings, another cellist, by the way, you see this kind of like magnetism. I've shown it to like second graders watching him conduct Wagner, and they're all looking like this. They can't believe what's going on. Because uh, it, look, it looks like a wizard. But don't you think there is a connection between your cello learning of breath and moving your brother moving your arm and what you're doing with the stick. I saw I saw a string player conducting who had this interface going on. Talk talk Absolutely. about that phenomenon and and why why does it happen for you? Absolutely. Well, I, I think there's no question that the bow. Well, the bow transitioned into the baton, right? So at some point before there was a conductor, there was the first violin or there was the harpsichord player, the organist or keyboard instrument player. And they would maybe show like, here we go, <gasps> bum. And there, you know, at, at, as the orchestra grew, as um, industrialization grew and, and the world grew as wanting and, more. And conductors got gangrene like Lully when he went boom and hit his foot. <laughs> Exactly. God Almighty. Exactly. That's not a good story. But now talk no. about it too. I mean, this kind of this mysterious quality where literally it comes up through your legs, into your arm, into them, and then it comes back. That's the Harry Potter phenomenon. <laughs> well, I, I will say uh, a confession that my wife said she wouldn't marry me if I hadn't read the Harry Potter books. She's right. And and years later, we're married, but I never read the Harry Potter books. But, you know, and she's doing better than me because she had not seen the Godfather movies. All right. Well, we'll talk about both. She watched those. I haven't. I haven't started to read. Okay. Um, I, <laughs> what you're talking about is something real. Um, and um, though it's not tangible, you no, know, it's not. A, a feeling that, first of all, the bow in itself um uh, the connection to the string, I think that that uh, rub, the the tension and the um, uh, connection, they're very similar. Every every instrument has this. So you know, the flute player has it where the wind is going. You feel kind of a pushback in some right. ways. And clearly, on a brass instrument, you have that buzz. But really, you know, coming from what part of your body is it? Your head? Is it your breath? You know, 
um, everyone has that point of intersection. And actually, um, you know, getting to play with music musicians from outside of the the classical world, I feel um, I remember Bela Fleck saying the the brotherhood of the pick. You know, when you're picking mm. an instrument like a like a banjo or a mandolin, mm. it's so immediate. You know, it just the second you do it, and we all know this as orchestral musicians, a pizzicato, even when you pluck the string with the flesh of your hand, that speaks sooner than the bow on the string. Mm -hmm. So in some ways the pits has to be a little later so it's all matched together. And I feel like every instrument has that moment of connection with their sound. Um, and for me, you know, now that uh, you know, you, you're, you're there and you're not actually making sound, you're actually just um, trying to gather people and bring people on the same uh, wavelength and goal and uh, trajectory like hey we're going here with the music how are right. we going to get there let's all go I feel that I feel blessed that you know having had the time with that the you know the the cello with the bow on the string that um, that is a moment that one can feel and all musicians know what that is whether it's a pianist a percussionist a string player a wind player Brett <sighs> and you know where that thing is. So I, I hope I bring that to any orchestra that I'm with. Well, it was clear. It was very clear watching you and also listening to the recordings and seeing now the, the video. Now, there are three organizations that you are active with, uh, and you will be again soon. And they are, of course, the Brooklyn Knights, which is a phenomenal group. I often think it's almost like a, a gorilla using the G-U-E, not the G-O, <laughs> But what you do is you put together different ensembles for different occasions, pretty much. There's a season, but there's also, you know, we're going to do this or we're going to do that and we're going to be outside or we're going to be in a bar or we're going to be, you know, out in Central Park. It doesn't, you don't care where it is. You just, the communication is what's important. That, you know, what I call about the cross-fertilization. But then there's Orlando Philharmonic Orchestra, which in Central Florida, and the Greater Bridgeport Symphony. These three organizations, very different, very different communities, very different needs. One's Brooklyn and the, and the New York metropolitan area and also going to Europe and all kinds of places that you've gone to. And then you've got these, these local institutions. So I'm just curious, when you're building a season, because you have to think about it. nothing happens, you know, immediate. We we have to plan way in advance, typically, to get soloists and blah blah blah, do rep, the right repertoire. What's the difference for you, or is there one? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, every community needs a different something at a different time, with uh, with regard to specific music programmed, specific soloists. Uh, how do you gather people? What does a community need and want? And what do they not know that they need and want that uh. you could bring to them? Because obviously the duty of an orchestra, there are, there are duties that are like a museum. We are the civic orchestra that brings the great historic works mm -hmm. to the stage. Right. And so that's one one aspect of being a civic orchestra. Maybe that aspect was something that was more uh, 
say that maybe that used to be 95% of what civic orchestras did uh, you know, uh, 20 years ago. And I feel like now the transition for orchestras is really about um, the, the words that are said and maybe cliche are like relevance and sustainability and connecting. And Good. of course, all those things are true. And we need to figure out a way that an orchestra in a city can be connected with not just the immediate patron base of ticket buyers, subscribers, things like that, because we need to be everywhere, right? Everyone needs to be everywhere right now, for better or for worse. And, and Eric, there's not just one audience. That's what orchestras need to learn. And many of them have. You know, because you are an entrepreneur with your brother, with, of course, the Brooklyn Knights, and you've seen it. Remember, there's no Brooklyn Philharmonic anymore. There right. are the Brooklyn Knights, and why? Because you answered a need. <laughs> it's really true. Yeah, yeah. The the Knights is really about figuring out where is um, where is the place that we can most fit. You know, um, we have to carve out our niche because, of course, New York is so plentiful with so many incredible artists great groups so you have yeah. to find your way to create and it's funny uh, we have sort of different we plug into different needs in different places in europe actually when we tour we tour generally you know a symphonic orchestra that's like a beethoven symphony right. or a schubert symphony mm -hmm. now we pair that and we we frame that with the most beautiful, colorful frames. Sometimes it's gold and you're putting Couperin or something. And something it's sometimes it's kind of a rustic new thing, like you know, Thomas Addis over here, or sometimes it's just a canvas that has no frame around it, like Rameau or something, and then making arrangements and Barrio, you know, all different programs that come together uh, for for various reasons. And I feel like for me programming, especially with the Knights, um, when we're touring, say, a standard piece of music, and I say standard meaning of the classical canon, um, it's really about what do you put around it to make those things unique. And for, for civic orchestras, like programming music in right. Orlando, not only do we have to play you know, a Schumann symphony that I was just thinking about recently that we're doing in, in about a month and a half, but also need to bring composers with that thing so they could actually have a new way of thinking about Schumann. So this concert that's coming up um, with, with Schumann's second symphony, we're doing like a Lembit Beecher world premiere with a cellist who's been here before, Karen Azunian, absolutely incredible. And, and I think we're starting that concert with an Arvo Pert piece. And it's kind of a beautiful, it's an outdoor concert. So there's something very special about all those elements, which are very nature oriented in general. Good. Good. And, and being, I think, really being able to represent, you know, um, all different styles of music. Now that's only three composers on a season, but you know clearly it's it's about trying to reach um, a new understanding of different different music. And that's wonderful. But and now in Bridgeport, you've also you also go into the schools. I know that you, uh, you've been doing that. Yes, on every every program that we're together, we're in at least one school. Sometimes, uh, and it works in different ways. What we've really been trying to do is bring the entire orchestra to schools. It's it's kind of a 
a daunting task for all the reasons. Not only are schools hard to, I know. you know, like, hey, are we available right now? We're gonna, but also the just getting, you know, 60 people through a door of a school is very well, it hard. It makes such a difference. I've spoken to old timers years ago who spoke about the first time they heard classical music was when the Philadelphia Orchestra and Leopold Stokowski came to their school. Can you oh. imagine? So beautiful. And he yeah. did it all the time. Stokey did it all the time. Yeah. And he invited people in to see rehearsals. Kusevitsky did it too. Yeah. It's just, it's smart because you've become part of that whole community. Yeah. So you we've know, been yeah, both at Bridgeport and Orlando. You know, we have these rehearsals that take place. So you have like four or five rehearsals and then you have concerts. And we've been trying to do our rehearsals, at least some of them, in school auditoriums Smart. and make it available. So, and it becomes kind of, you know, there are various ways. You could just rehearse and let people watch. You could make it an open rehearsal and engage mm -hmm. briefly. But we always try to put it so that students show up at a certain time and during that time we perform for them, meaning we interact with them and ask them questions and try to have that thing. I think it does go a very long way to building relationships that might pay dividends in 30 years because you're in the school and then you go to college and you have a family and, oh, do you remember? I had Eric you... Jacobson. He introduced me to the, the Beethoven Eroica when I was seven years old. I can, <laughs> I, what an introduction. <laughs> Boy, was he good. You know, this is the stuff that we have to build on. That's good. I, I have a question that I've asked other conductors and musicians, which I find interesting as a 70-year-old composer. Why does some music last and some does not? When Beethoven wrote his Ninth Symphonies, there were 300, 300 symphonies being written by other people. Maybe we represent, rep, remember a little bit of Cherubini and sometimes Homo, but otherwise, no. What makes something stick in your mind? Well, I guess it's two or three things. It's one that uh, greatness does rise to some degree. You know, sometimes things that are great get lost, but I think it's it's that and it's fashion, right? Things go, things are not in fashion right now that are still truly great, and will hopefully circle back. What kind uh, of things are, are not in fashion now? I, I remember my teacher. Um, Harvey Shapiro talking about how Boelman, a composer who wrote various pieces and maybe most famous was the symphonic variations for cello and orchestra, a 20 minute piece, which is probably just as valid as a piece of music as Sasson's concerto or something, you know, uh, it's kind of late romantic, beautiful. And it fell out of fashion because it was maybe um, the composer's name didn't become such a thing and mm -hmm. some there wasn't enough behind it wasn't part of like this french movement mm -hmm. and we end up saying oh that's not really the thing now and you know there are obviously are loved composers of a time period like clearly john adams is the most recognized american symphonic composer i mean philip glass but john in terms of that's what he does he does a little bit of film score but really it's just it's, it's that thing. And he will clearly, as he continues to compose, be 
be commissioned and more pieces are going to be written. And clear, as far as I'm concerned, he will, his name and his music will live on forever. Uh, and like, like Beethoven, Beethoven was recognized in his time. He wasn't an undiscovered composer uh, for being great and being amazing. And people loved him. They judged him as, you know, maybe, maybe these days because the word genius gets thrown around, maybe some people who have greatness and have been recognized as great, maybe they get a pass. Uh, and it's, oh yeah, that wasn't, the, it was still great because he's or she's so genius and brilliant that they, you know, of course it's so good. But you know, you mentioned Beethoven. It's interesting. In the 1820s, he was eclipsed by Rossini. That's Well, the opera, you know, the stage yeah. continues to be a, uh, the thing where, oh, well, maybe that's more of the perfect art, right? And he, and he was very, he was rather annoyed about that. It turns as, out. As, as being the most famous, you mean? popular getting performed being the uh, hot ticket the just, hot yeah. <laughs> right it's very interesting the way these things work and then you look at somebody like maya bear who was you know just a massively huge composer making all kinds of money and nobody's doing the prophet or african now it's fascinating how this works sometimes you know um in your career eric jacobson it, it is fascinating to watch and to observe how you um, encounter different circumstances and you step back, it's clear, and you think. And you think about what can I do to bring a meaningful conversation into these relationships I'm going to have. I think it's clear too, don't you think, to, to, fi to finish our a wonderful discussion today, that when you get in front of an orchestra, don't they mostly know that you're a virtuoso cellist as well do you think that makes any diff bit of difference among the string players i'm not asking you about the the trombone the third trombone but <laughs> i'm just I, curious I think, I think there's absolutely mutual respect when it comes to the recognition of what it does to become excellent at something right. and you know sometimes now uh, talking to a very young, hopeful conductor, like a 15-year-old who says, I want to be a conductor. That seems odd to me because, and, and everyone goes through their own process, but if I hadn't become a cellist, if I hadn't honed the skills to be um, good enough to be a musician on playing instrument, playing an instrument. That was my, as you started this conversation, coming up in the opera ranks. Like I didn't come up in the opera ranks. I came up in the instrumental um, right. uh, chamber slash uh, um, or chamber orchestra, chamber quartet world. Free yeah. free freelance New York musician. Yeah. And I, uh, there's no question that my respect on the podium for all the musicians who right. are there, who are playing, it's like, gosh, you have to, f you have to hone that skill every day you go home and you just go like this because, and maybe it's not to get better. Maybe it's just to be able to do that as well as you could. And then maybe two days later, it is actually a step forward and you always want to be better as a musician. How does one do that? And so if I, I, I hope that while I'm there on that podium, I exude that respect. And I hope that that's recognized because we have to, 
Uh, you know, there, this is such a hard thing. It's an Olympic athletic, you know, sprint every time you actually are playing an instrument. And we don't think about that so much. I mean, how many great basketball players are there? How many great oboists are there? It's, it's, you know, it's not that many. And you think about, well, clearly there could be more great basketball players. There could be more great oboists, but boy, does it take a lot to decide that that's the direction you're going to go in your life. So I hope that what you're saying um, does come across, which is a mutual respect of, whew, that's a lot. And you know, I'll say this, I, um, I hope that I translate that. I think a lot of it has to do with my father um, being a violinist uh, in the Met Opera for so long and telling me just a couple little things throughout the years that are just so bothersome. You know, a conductor who corrects mistakes, like that's unnecessary because someone plays a B flat instead of a B natural, it's like, yeah, the next time they'll play it right. There's no, and there, it's a waste of time to, to, to let people know that you know that they made a mistake. It's just ridiculous. Cause I mean, if something happens two times, three times, okay, maybe it's a misprint. Maybe someone had, you know, had some weird recording in their mind. It's just a mistake, that's oh, fine. But you know, um, when we're there and doing something together, the idea that one makes a mistake and it's a big deal, it doesn't matter. You know, you're spending time, you're rehearsing, you're getting to a shared mutual understanding of where you're going. It's so much more important than letting people know that you know you played a wrong note. So I hope that as a conductor, that's, that is translated from, from you know, but from it, having played an instrument. No, it's very, it's fascinating. Is it also very interesting about the role of the conductor? Because let's talk about that just for a few seconds, and then we have to go. You know, you're up there trying to, in a word, impose, in a way, your view of how a piece should go, how it should breathe, how it should, has the speed of, of it, you know, the nature of it, the very essence of it. And there are 60, 70, 80, who knows how many in front of you, who you want to melt to your will, but at the same time, and this is the rub, this is the genius of it, you need their input back at you. Their input back at you is not only your input to them, It's a two, that's that pressure in the baton that I was talking about, the Harry Potter Voldemort moment. So to end, talk about that, that mindset that you have to have when you start a new piece with a fresh orchestra, not people you know already. I assume with your three ensembles, you know, that that back and forth is very easy. But let's say it's the first time going before the X-City Symphony, you know, hard-nosed players. You're there, you put it down, it's a minute, you've got a minute and a half to show them you know what you're doing. Talk about that. What's in your head? <laughs> Well, I, I'll give the, the most obvious answer that I could think of is that you get right to work and do music and you, you do the thing that you have to do uh, because you just have to. And sometimes it's awkward at first, just like any other relationship, you know, you, you be there, you do that thing. And I, and I really think that, you know, that, uh, that idea of surrounding yourself and embracing different ideas and really, really great, great musicians and great players and great minds. You know, it's like 
Lincoln surrounding himself with a cabinet of people who disagreed because cabinet actually, of rivals. Yeah. What's that? Cabinet of rivals. Exactly. Yeah. You end up having a, a group of people that will end up not compromising. You will end up with a group of people whose opinions are so strong that they have to actually really decide what it, no, it's not, we're not good. I want it loud. I want it soft. Okay. Let's play it in between. Well, that's not better. So how do you actually figure out what is better? And with an orchestra, I think it's so important to try to get that, right? It's not just, I, I mean, there's, there's, no, there's not enough time in the world to give everyone an exact idea of what you want as a conductor. Right. It's ridiculous because generally speaking, in most pieces, you show up on the podium, if, if you haven't just centered in and only done that one piece of music your whole life, quite likely, Many people in the orchestra have played the piece as many times as you or have played it many more times than you. And there's such um, institutional memory as, as musicians mm. that needs to be activated. And therefore, the chance of learning something and actually taking more away than you're able to give is well guilt-inducing and beautiful. The idea that like you can possibly participate in something that actually the oboes they had their, they knew, they knew all along. And now you know. So the next time you go and you're with a group that hasn't done it so much, you might be able to say, hey, there was this one time that, you know, um, Jane was playing and I was so impressed with this and this is what they did. And, and oh, and that's uh, actually the beauty of how communication is super slow and across generations. Yes, we have the internet. Yes, we can email. Yes, we can text and everything is instantaneous. But the oral tradition of music is one that's often about, you know, words spoken and then sounds heard and, and going back and forth. So, you know, it's why, you know, we talk about, oh, that version of that with the Vienna Philharmonic was 60 years away from when Brahms was alive. And therefore there's this, and those are such beautiful things and should be embraced. And I, uh, wouldn't it be nice if, if the world was able to have that as um, a more formal way of communicating, not just the, um, the social media um, and the dangers of not actually looking at someone in the eye. Well, I, I love your sincerity and the way you approach things. I think the answer is, frankly, when you get in front of that group for the first time or even the hundredth time, there's a sincerity that you bring to it, which you've shown on again on, on our talk today. I can't thank you enough, Eric Jacobson, oh. for, for being on this broadcast with me. Thank you so much, Michael. It's just such a total pleasure. Can't wait to see you again in a concert hall. Would that Very be nice? <laughs> Eric Jacobson, musician extraordinaire, thank you so much for joining me on Interplay Conversations in Music. Thank you so much for having me. Total pleasure. I'm Michael Shapiro, your host. Looking forward to seeing you again on Interplay Conversations in Music. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>